The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming health tech. From AI to robotics and beyond, we're reinventing what's possible, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. LinkedIn News. How do you mark the beats of your year? Hey everyone, from LinkedIn News, this is In the Arena, a podcast exploring human potential. I'm Leah Smart, and every week you'll find me right here in conversation with bright minds and brave hearts, learning how we can improve our lives and our world by transforming ourselves. So last year I was recommended this book called Wintering by Catherine May. And I actually can't remember who told me about it, so thanks, whoever you are. Uh, But they did so because I was trying to figure out how to weather storms, metaphorically speaking. I was also in the middle of one of my own storms or one of my own winters. And so simultaneously was afraid that my admission of it might cause me to totally unravel. Of course, I unraveled anyway. And so as I put myself back together, I was drawn to this book again because I want you and I to be better prepared for hard things. The truth is, we don't know when these hard things will happen, and we don't know what will happen. But I do know that not feeling so alone when they do and having practices that you reach for is a really powerful foundation. Catherine's book is really meant to be a companion. I found it was a poetically written memoir of her own winter combined with the stories of those in her life who've wintered too. And best of all, how all of us can approach our metaphorical winters. As it turns out, Catherine is absolutely lovely. Our conversation was a lot less bone-chilling and a lot more beautiful than I imagined. And her book gave me this much-needed reframe on how we learn to winter and also how we come to accept that winters will come. Here's Catherine, starting with her answer to my favorite question. What's the intention behind your work? I think it's twofold. I am very motivated to be a helper. I'm always looking for ways to help. And I do genuinely think that one of the best ways we can help each other is by sharing our honest and sincere experience and really being vulnerable out in the world and bringing our whole self to it and telling the truth about what our life is. But the other motivation is I I always, always write to understand myself better and also where I write when I, I sit down to write when I want to know a topic because I know that the research I'll do for writing will take me through that process of knowing something deeply and thinking about it and exploring it and turning it over in my hands what I love about writing is I get to really think it through and revise it and polish it and make sure that it's tested from all sides. I'm in the process of changing my mind all the time. And I love doing that. I find that such an important way to to think. Like I don't want to stay the same all the time. I want to keep moving on because I hear new perspectives. You know, you you said something, um, this was like towards the end of the book, you're talking about the fact that life is uncontrollable. And what would happen essentially if we stop trying to finalize our comfort and security and find radical acceptance in essentially the changing Mm. nature of life, which is what brought me to the book Wintering. 
And I imagine it's what brought you to writing the book, Wintering. Yeah. And so yeah. I want to know, you know, for, for people who haven't heard your story in the way that you, because you're changing your mind all the time and you wrote this book a few years ago and the way that you <laughs> want to share it today, mm. what can you share to give people insight into how you got mm. here? Gosh, it's a long version and a short version. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Whichever one. <laughs> well, so the book I wrote before I wrote Wintering was a memoir called The Electricity of Every Living Thing. And that was a, a sort of account of the year that I learned I was autistic. I'm one of this growing number of late diagnosed women. So like all these other people, um, I'd lived my whole life really struggling and going through major winters really regularly, like my whole world crashing through because um, autistic people are really vulnerable to burnout, essentially. Um, that's simplifying things. But when you're trying to fit in with a world that isn't comfortable for you, you get very exhausted. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I'd finished Electricity and I started to think about my next book, I wanted to share, I guess, the knowledge that I'd accumulated over a long, long time about surviving those winters. I'd been trying to think of a way to pass on this like knowledge that you build up of how safe those spaces actually are if we let them be and if we honour them as part of our normal existence. But I started off as a poet and I'm, I will always be like a very narrative writer. So I wanted to do it in my way. Um, but I did, I did initially, when I was writing the proposal for the book, say, I think it's a self-help book, but it's a different kind of a self-help book. And, you know, my agent was a bit like, oh, don't call it self-help. You're not that kind of writer, you know. Don't do that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. <laughs> And I was like, no, you know, I, there is, there is nothing wrong with good self-help. Like good self-help is revolutionary to people, but I did feel like the genre needed reforming. I felt like it needed to be more beautiful. And I also felt like it needed to be more generous because so many of the books that I'd read when I was trying to figure out why I couldn't ever cope and trying to find a system that would let me do that didn't give me the option to fail like and I think most people that read most of these books do fail there's no place to catch them so I wanted to write a book that walked alongside the reader and really respected that their life was difficult and that there were no simple solutions but instead kind of traveled with them and showed them that there's a shape of things, but there's not 10 easy steps to get there. And that's mm. where the book came from. That makes me teary-eyed because I think that's exactly, you're right, that's what self-help does need. And that's why I, mm. you know, I love self-help similar to you. And um, I also often like loathe the one, two, three <laughs> steps, you know? Yeah. And and so I love the, the way that you wrote this does feel beautiful and more generous. Um and I want to talk about, like, what, I think we all inherently know what wintering is, 
So as, as soon as yes. someone told me the title, yeah. I don't know who it was. I was like, oh boy, you yeah, know, I didn't have like to read the description. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I already know and I can't head there right now. But like, what would you say wintering is? So wintering is a sort of metaphorical experience of going through a season in the cold. Um, so it might be because you've had some kind of a life crisis. It might be a mental health issue. It might be a physical health issue. It might just be that you're dealing with a major change and you've yet to process it. But however that comes, you feel shut out of the mainstream world for a while. You feel like there's a layer of ice between you and all of the people who are just carrying on as normal. You assume everything's perfect for them and everything's uniquely bad for you. And it often comes alongside feelings of like intense failure and self-loathing, anxiety, like all those terrible emotions that crop up when we're not certain of who we are anymore. And when we don't have a society that honours that experience and sees it as a, as a process of change. Um, but I, I wanted to write from the perspective of a winter lover. Um, I love the cold. I love the snow. I love ice. I love frost. I love fog. You know, um, so I took a really close look at what nature does in winter and tried to write a, an, almost like a biography of a season where everything begins rather than everything ends. Um, and that's how ancient societies seem to have seen winter. Uh, and that's, I think, how we need to learn to see it again. Mm -hmm. I <laughs> A few years ago, I was doing a certification for my coaching. And in order to do that, you have to do these two short coachings with people who've been coaching for years. So the first woman came with her topic. And I say, what's on your mind? And she goes, I'm really sick of Christmas. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, let's go. Okay. Me too. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> yeah, she's like, I have grandkids, I have kids, I'm sick of it. Like, I, you know, so we we end up going through this whole process where she comes to in the 15 minutes that, in fact, she's going to cancel Christmas. And she's going to, she's not going to be the host. She's not going to do all the things she's done the years prior. But what she is going to do is she's going to replace it with uh, a celebration on December 21st, 21st of the solstice. She's like, I just want to go back to what the pagans did. Like, I just, can we just like go back? Um, and I think, you know, isn't it funny that what we call new age is often what's existed for thousands of years that we refuse to look at and perhaps just accept pieces of? Oh, I really agree. And I think we have this real suspicion of anyone that creates what we see as new rituals. When actually, I'm really excited by that. Like, I'm excited by the way that people are remaking their understanding of the world around them and reconnected with the seasons. And for me, that is such a better route through that Christmas period. Like not one day that everything's thrown at and everyone feels exhausted and jaded and overwrought, but like this process that you work through from the solstice right through to new year that is kind of, slow actually and difficult because it's so slow but that slowness is really it's that it's a real site of transformation and reflection and I I feel so much more excited by that period now than I did before I wrote the book because I had to really think about what it meant to me and I started marking the solstice every year and that is now the 
without a doubt, the high point of my year. I've been planning it for like two months. <laughs> you know, I, I looked at the reason that that I was connecting those dots is because in the book, you talk about the solstice and you go to it was Stonehenge, right, to do the celebration yeah. of the solstice. Yeah. Um, I had always thought of it as like the beginning of the end. So um what the way that you reframed it for me was actually it's like oh so everything from here on in is is like a rebuilding of life you see the change over time and it helps you to start marking like yeah. oh we're getting closer yeah. there's something shifting but it also like forces you to be present in the moment to say all right and here's where we are right now absolutely i mean clocks are in many ways a terrible way to mark time because they impose this regimented system on a world that's moving in very different ways. And yes, the time feels like it slows between the solstice and new year. And that's an incredible moment. Like we are dealing with rebirth here. Um, and, you know, the Christian uh, story behind Christmas is about rebirth as well. But it's something that we can almost marshal ourselves, like we can almost take the rebirth of the year in our own hands and walk through it in that process from the moment that we reach the shortest day until this this moment when we celebrate the new again. And like one of the sad things for me about New Year is that we've now got to a place where New Year is this time when we're penitent and... <laughs> We're kind of feeling terrible about overeating and drinking too much. And we're supposed to reform ourselves. <laughs> and that's like, that is the worst point of the year that I can possibly think to do that. You know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Spring is, is not springing dark. at that point. <laughs> no, it is dark. It is cold. You know, we're dealing with, you know, all those kind of difficult seasonal things. Let's just learn to go gently into that new year and to treat it like the baby it is, to treat it like the new being that, that is happening um, and to nurture it with something positive, some positive behaviours, some, some lovely, luxurious, gorgeous things that we can do to take care of ourselves and to usher ourselves towards the things that we're desiring rather than punishing ourselves for just having had a nice time for a couple of weeks. Like, it's really fine to have a nice time for a couple of weeks. We should not be sorry about that. Agreed. Uh, I, I'm like, it's really, it's actually really fine to have a nice time for your whole life. We should not be sorry about yeah. that, right? But yeah, just have a nice time. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's, it, yeah, it's not going to be easy, but like, don't take yourself so seriously. And how do we manage this balance of like, there are so many things that feel serious and feel heavy, but also at the end of our life, like we're not going to be thinking about, you know, whether or not we we're able to do certain tasks on time or if, you know, all the stuff that we worry about. Um, and so, so I want to, I want to pull back a little bit because I, I also want to acknowledge that like, we're talking about winter as, as the season. And yet, you know, your book is also about the fact that wintering is, yeah. can be a season that happens anytime. Um, you know, for me, I would say it started in the summer, funny enough, uh, mm -hmm. and I didn't recognize it. And then by the time winter hit, it was still there and yeah. that was when I started to recognize it. And and then it, it took time to come out of it. And the hardest part was getting comfortable. And I don't I, I honestly I don't know if I can say I really mm. got comfortable with how 
uncomfortable it was um, yeah. and how it felt lonely and it was painful. And it was like, you know, I, I, I told the story over and over again. This happened and this happened and this happened. These are the reasons mm-hmm. that I'm here now. Um, I felt like I was having to justify why I was in the position I was in. So mm-hmm. it was almost like an apology for why I'm not how you expect me to be. Um, how mm-hmm. do we work with ourselves and also with each other as we winter? Yeah. I think in lots of ways, actually. I mean, on, on one hand, I do think that that we often very naturally retreat in these times and draw away from uh, everyday social contacts. And I think that can be really positive as long as we maintain the ties with the people who are most important to us. Like, I, I think we can stage a, a sort of partial retreat and almost pair back to our most essential relationships and to the people that we feel safe with and who we can trust to be kind to us at this very, very vulnerable moment. But it's really interesting to me that you brought up like telling your story over and over again, because I actually think that that's a a really important function of a wintering. Like we start to restory ourselves almost. Mm. And and maybe that begins in an apologetic way. Like maybe we're trying to make an account of ourselves. Like how did mm-hmm. I get here? What what went wrong? And you're almost trying to work out like, was that my fault? You know, <laughs> did I did I do this? Or did I drag this and, out too long? Yeah. You know, sometimes we have got something to be sorry for when we go into wintering sometimes we haven't been kind or we haven't behaved ourselves in the best way and and it can take us some time to come to terms with that and to think about how we're going to heal that and like I that's not bad that's actually great like it's pushing those moments away that cause us the the real pain and when we hit a winter we're often realizing mistakes we've made but also we're like conversely coming to terms with our own helplessness in the world and how we can't stop this these processes from happening you know I I say at the beginning of the book even if you got everything right one day your parents are going to die or you're going to get sick or someone will train you, you know, there is not a set of right behaviours you can undertake to stop life from happening. And so, yeah, so we start telling stories about ourselves. And by the end of the wintering, we have a new story quite often. And it's very different to the one that went in. And it's got a different time scale and a different scope and maybe a narrative arc has closed in our life and, and it's the beginning of a new one. Um, I mean, it's interesting because I've worked for years with lots of people who want to write memoir and they often start to write a memoir from the middle of a crisis. And I was like, uh-uh, you've got to wait for a while. You don't know you don't know what's happening here. You don't know what the story is until you've actually lived through it. You can't rush this. Like, That's you can't right. write about it now. It's not, it's not time. Right about the last crisis, you've got a story for that. You haven't made sense of this yet. I always say, like, you can't connect the dots until you're out in front of it and you can look back and go, oh, that happened, that happened, that happened, and that happened, and I wouldn't change a thing because it's how I got here. Um, that is if you're intentional. Uh, but in your book, you said, when everything is broken, everything is also up for grabs. That's the gift of winter. And to this idea of narratives and the stories we tell about our winters, 
I think it is important. And I had, you know, it's funny, I was I was feeling apologetic. I was having like, I think they call it a meta emotion where I was like apologetic <laughs> about the apology that I was making. You know? I'm sorry that I'm Not sorry good. and I, it's happening. But I'm like, how many times am I going to tell this story? And I, I, I did hit a point eventually where I was like, I don't need to keep telling this story. But it wasn't until I, maybe maybe that was the marker of winter being over. Yeah, I think that, that's right. You almost... It's almost like that story runs its course and you've got no use for it anymore. We're off to a quick break, but before we go, I am loving how Catherine is reframing this. Since we can't connect the dots till we're on the other side of our winter, maybe if you're still telling the story of what happened to you, you're still connecting the dots and you haven't gotten to that part yet where you're clear on the meaning. Now, if you've been doing this for so long, you feel stuck or debilitated, it could be time to talk to someone, a professional. We've all been there. But otherwise, why don't we let our stories run their course and trust that we'll find meaning eventually? When we get back, a new way to think about the middle of the night. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming healthcare technology. From artificial intelligence to robotics and beyond, health tech is reinventing what's possible. Every year, Medtronic improves the lives of 74 million people. And we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. And we're back with Catherine May. So there was one topic in the book, Wintering, that I had to ask her about. It didn't quite fit in with the rest of our conversation, but it's something called the watch or night watch. And I thought it was a great way to reframe how we think about and perceive nighttime, our sleep, and most importantly, how waking up in the middle of the night doesn't have to provoke stress and anxiety. Yeah. So, I mean, like loads of other people, I'd often thought of myself as an insomniac. You know, I'd go to bed and I'd fall asleep, but then I'd wake up in the night and have like two or three very restless hours of of turning in my bed. And in the course of researching wintering, I came across this idea of the watch, um, which is a historic idea. I mean, essentially, it seems that if you research people's historic sleep patterns right up until when, when we had electric light, that it was utterly normal for people in the long winter nights to wake up for quite an extended period in the middle. And when you think about that, I mean, light would have faded at, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon. um, And there was not a lot they could do except for sleep. And we do seem to naturally sleep for longer in the winter, but we still can't cover that huge span of time before the sun comes up again. And so there's this period when people would just simply get up and they saw it as like a distinct space. So this wasn't a time when you did your daily work. It wasn't a time for like household chores. It was a restful space. It was a space where you prayed or meditated. People often had sex at that point in the night because everything was quiet. Um, You'd have conversations with your family or your loved ones Sometimes even neighbours would visit and people would have a chat. Um, So it was this kind of gentle, sociable, very relaxed space. And when people did experiments uh, to see if they could recreate it and put people in in kind of pre-electric light patterns, 
their sleep patterns would within a week fall into this and they would naturally wake up in the night. And if you tested their blood during that time, it had uh, what the research called an endocrinology all of its own. In other words, it, the blood has a unique hormonal profile during the watch that we don't see at any other point in human existence. And it's most similar to breastfeeding mothers. Our, our blood is full of prolactin, whether we're male or female. And that brings about this very kind of contented, dreamy, like happy, you know, quite happy, contented uh, headspace. And so if you can reframe your waking in the night into something that's normal, <laughs> that has been done for most of history and use it to create beautiful time for you, like it's the time now that I read um, I often write, but only by hand. I don't go onto my screen. I often get up and meditate. I stroke the dog. Um, it's actually this secret room in our lives that we've forgotten is there. Mm. That was such a beautiful description. Thank you. And and thanks for humoring me with that random aside. So uh, I'm curious, what are you hoping to pass on to people about what it means to winter or just changing the way we relate to the seasons of our lives? I guess one of the things for me is that I am deeply comfortable in that space where everything is uncertain. Like, actually, I'm very at home in uncertainty because I trust it to get remade. And I don't even think that it always is going to be like a better life. But I know that life will solidify again in a new way even if I've had to compromise and had to recognize that change has occurred that's beyond my control, it will all land. And I, I get really excited working with people who are in that space where everything's like floating around their heads at the moment. You know, all the furniture's up in the air, they're mid-fall. The eye of the hurricane, um, because the challenge for us as humans is to just learn to be there. Like, don't rearrange the furniture yet. Like, just exist in that space for a while and know how it feels to fall and to feel uncertain and to not know what's coming next because actually that's the whole of life. The fixedness that we think we have is an illusion anyway that makes us feel safe. So if we can feel safe in uncertainty, that's... It's such a good mindset to to dwell in, I think. Hmm. So part of the reason that I started doing the work I'm doing and that I wanted to start this mm. show and having these conversations is um, we are taught, most of us are taught that there is this very clear linearity to life. And, yeah. you know, in theories and adult development, they talk about the fact that, um, you know, we go along that path and then something happens mm. and that something knocks us off the path <laughs> and also knocks us out of like the general population. So we can't relate in the same way to our friends that we could before the thing. There's like the the BC and the AD, right? And you're like, oh, yeah. I, I can't yeah. go back. And so from there, we've got to figure out how to rewrite what we want out of our lives. It sort of reminds me of the, the portion you talk about mm. with your son where he is having yeah. such a tough time in school and that most parents would say, well, tough it out, you know, deal with it. And they yeah. would yeah. essentially tell him to stuff down his experiences and continue life 
And you instead went with no, which you shouldn't have to, in order to reach your potential, you shouldn't also then have to be discontented. I wrote a note as I was reading that part is like, I wonder what would have happened if your son hadn't have had that experience, you know, like we don't all have that moment that takes us off the linear course. And so I think sometimes what I notice is with those people who are on the linear course and are clinging to that for the goal of certainty, Mm. they almost want to pull away from those of us who haven't had that experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, I mean, there are some people who get away with it for a very long time, aren't there? That that carry on with that kind of upward striving arrow for ages. And I mean, I, I don't mean this in a horrible way, but it will come to them eventually. But I totally understand how hard it must be to perceive why other people are like stalling and circling back and struggling um if you've never been hit by anything and and you know these people rise in politics and they rise as authors and we listen to their advice because we think that we can replicate their life if we do the things they tell us to do but they actually just have no idea what to tell us to do because they've just been lucky <laughs> like mm-hmm. they've just been totally totally lucky and often quite privileged as well. I hate to say it (laughs) Uh, because nobody likes to be told they're privileged. But if you have never had a major life setback, if you've never suffered discrimination, if you've never been sick, if you've, you know, never had a mental health problem, that's a massive privilege to live with. And just be grateful for it and don't tell other people that they're doing it wrong because they've just been hit by normal life. But, you know, the 99% of us who do have to live in a in a much less striding manner um they're my people and they are the people who are compassionate who are wise who are gentle who are kind uh because they know what it is to be in that incredibly difficult place and i even though that's come from suffering I just, I think it's full of value. It's full of absolute gold. And those, you know, the wisest people in our society are without a doubt the ones that have endured enormous suffering. Mm -hmm. There's a teacher of mine that I used to go to and she would say, um, people learn lessons all types of ways, but most of the people I know learn through pain, not through joy. Right, so there's, right, there's right, right, right? Yeah. it's like the the lows are where the highs come from and they teach you something about yourself. And so it's the the comfort that we can find or create to get us to the point where we can say, okay, I can do this. Like, that's it. I can mm-hmm. do this. And I think, I think we don't spend, you know, for fear of sounding like one of those people who's like aging out of social media and all the cool <laughs> stuff, I, I do think we don't spend enough time with ourselves and maybe even just with each other. Um, we're not spending time talking about the really hard stuff in a way that helps us feel like we have a sense of camaraderie and relatability with other people who've also experienced mm. it and with the knowledge that it's going, it will come to a close in this cycle. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I um, I attended a talk by Lama Rod Owens a couple of weeks ago. I, I he's one of my favourite thinkers. He's he's a kind of, mm. he's a Buddhist uh, Lama. He was saying about the communities that we often join online can be so problematic to us because uh, we 
we join communities that keep us in our pain mm-hmm. um, and we can get very mired in that. And the problem is that the problem with social media specifically with that, I think, is that there will always be the next person that joins that community that can keep us in that space mm-hmm. and leaving it can feel like a betrayal. Whereas when we're in much more heterogeneous groups of people, there will always be someone who can show us the path in both ways. There's someone who can dwell in difficulty with us and someone who can show us the way out. And I do think that what we really need is contact with a broad base of people in our lives. Mm-hmm. And that helps us to withstand conflict more. Um, it helps us to be more compassionate to different views and life experiences. And it helps us to see multiple routes all the time. I think in reality, we find it so hard as a society to invite the idea of complexity. And I talk about this a lot on the show because mm. duality is so much easier. Like if you're yeah. in or out, good, if you're good bad. or bad. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. it's so much easier. If 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 I can label yeah. you, then you're then you're done or you're invited in. Versus like, no, actually we're all all of those things. And and you know, yeah. if you're not compassionate about your own mistakes and the things that you've done wrong, how can you be compassionate okay. to others? Right? And like vice versa. If if you've made mistakes or you've done things that you look back now and say, I wouldn't do that again you're much more likely to look at someone and say, yes, that's wrong. I hold you accountable. And mm. I know at some point or today, you're going to be apologetic and understanding of why what you did was wrong. And and we don't, we don't make the opportunity to close that cycle. No. You know, for people to apologize or to pe- or people just to change their minds and, and for us to hear that. Yeah, again, it's really complex uh, and it should be. Mm-hmm. And, and that, again, it's a bit my, you know, I'm, I'm really comfortable in that space of change. I think I'm trying to get more comfortable in deep complexity, complexity. and not being right, like letting go of being right about Oof. anything. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is, that's a toughie for me too. Um, yeah. <laughs> the intention of this conversation is not to put some perfect bow, just like on your, in your book, some perfect bow <laughs> on wintering and how like it all turns out perfect in the end. Absolutely untrue. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I will say, you know, my wintering cycle is over for for now. And looking back, I can see how everything that had to, that happened had to happen in order for me to be here. And I couldn't be more grateful for where I am today. In the moments, I would have done anything to avoid some of the situations I've been in. Um, and I, I do, I will also say, like, I'm in, I'm in a little bit of wintering cycle when it comes to certain close friendships, right? So it's not that, like, yeah, life is sure, all yeah. spring or all winter, right? But there mm. are pieces of it everywhere. Yeah, there's little um, micro-winterings going on. Exactly. Yeah. I've, I've got a tiny <laughs> yeah. winter hat. I have, like, a snow globe. You know, it's, like, in the corner. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Everything else is sunny, but there is still a snow globe in the closet. Um, yeah. So, so after that, though, and I, I wonder actually how you how you frame this. Your book um, that's coming out is called Enchantment: Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age. What would you say about like the juxtaposition between enchantment and wintering, and what are you seeking to share through that? Yeah. So, I mean, actually, in lots of ways, enchantment 
still takes us quite deep into that wintering space um, because it's really about how we find joy again in a world that seems determined to keep us in a in a perpetual winter. I mean, I, I feel like we're in Narnia at the moment, you know, on, on a grand scale. <laughs> and we cannot um, find the closet door. <laughs> we cannot find that damn closet door. Yeah. Someone <laughs> has burnt the closet. <laughs> There's no way back. Oh God, I hope we're going to find it. Um, but, you know, big things keep coming in and we are, we're distressed and we've been distressed a long time. And the problem with that is it's given us like brain fog. It's making us anxious. It's making us completely exhausted and burnt out. And we need to find a way to live in this, this new world order because it has a lot has changed. And we've, we've got to find a way through Narnia, uh, which is less pretty than it, than it sounds. Um, and in, in addition to that, I think we are often talking ourselves out of joy because we think it's not worthy enough. We think that we have to stay serious and heavy all the time. And I want to say that the opposite's true. Like if we're going to fight these big waves of negative change that are happening, we've got to be modelling a great way to live. Like it's no good to just say this is all wrong. We have got to embody what is joyful and wonderful so that people are attracted towards our way of of life and so that we can endure it. And so Enchantment is a book about finding fascination and wonder and intense joy in the minutiae of life and in the world that's rolling on around us all the time and in the way that we tell stories around it and in the way that we understand and engage and connect with it. This feels like a minuscule question in relation to, I'm sure, how much is in the book. But <laughs> but what might be valuable for someone who may never pick up the book to know about enchantment? I think it's about returning to that kind of tingle that you felt as a child when, you know, we all had that thing that we found so fascinating and beautiful and magical. Like I use the word magical a lot at the moment because... We had that sense of magic when we were children. And I don't mean Father Christmas or fairies, you know, I mean that sense that the world was so big and mind-blowing and mysterious and it was all really happening and you couldn't quite believe that. Like I I talk about the story of how I used to um, break open stones in my back garden with a hammer and every like tenth one would have a little crystal geode inside of it. And... I used to just love holding them and thinking about how impossibly old they were and how tiny I was and what that meant. Like, and and as adults, we talk ourselves out of that kind of engagement with the world because it's a bit silly, frankly, like we've got other things to do and it's wasting time. And I think that's a huge loss. And we need Mm. to realise what we've lost when we disengage from that sense of that tingle of magic. And if we can get it back, if we can like coax it back into life by following things we find beautiful and fascinating and wonderful, um, I think it's a better way to live. And I, it can sustain us through hard times and it gives us something to pass on to the rest of the world. I do think it takes a lot of intention in the world we live in today to do that because Massively. 
you can so easily, right, like not not do it. You can so easily turn on the TV, no, watch the news. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, okay. So with that, Catherine, I'd like you to complete these three statements. Better humans are. Thoughtful about everything and therefore kind. Better work is. Something that you bring your entire humanity to rather than a work personality. And a better world has. A multiplicity of people who accept their uniqueness and work with that. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. I this was such an amazing conversation. It was it was this better than gorgeous. it would have been Thank last you. winter. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> No, thank you so much. That, that was absolutely lovely. That was Catherine May, author of Wintering and the upcoming book, Enchantment, Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age. One big thing before we go. I found it's more bearable to winter when we've enjoyed all of the other seasons. So my encouragement to you is that you choose to find a moment of gratitude in your high points. No, it's definitely not easy to remember, and sometimes it's a pain to practice. But kind of like the animals that fill up on food before they hibernate, I think being present and choosing joy in our high points more often gives us a layer of protection for when things do get a bit chilly. If you know someone going through a winter or preparing for one, send them this episode and help other people like you find our show by leaving us a rating before you go. Even better, write a one-sentence review telling me about how you're thinking about tough times differently after the lovely Catherine joined us. And as always, you can find me on LinkedIn, writing about human potential and meaningful living. In the Arena is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Michelle O'Brien. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Courtney Coop is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is head of news production. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming on the journey with me, and I will see you next week. <laughs>